G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. This is study 17 on Luke 12, verse 13, through to chapter 13, verse 9. Priorities in life. There are at least 12 different parables or sayings in this section. The theme is how we should set our goals and live our lives in view of the uncertainties of this life and the promise of the life to come. We start by reading chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Question 1. Why exactly was the rich man such a fool? I think you should get at least four different ways in which he was stupid. Here's part of the story again. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The four things I can see in this passage are, first, he assumed he would still be alive to enjoy the produce from his crops. Secondly, he ignored the concerns of other people. Third, he assumed that eat, drink and be merry would lead to joyful merriment. And fourth, he ignored the claims of God on his life. Question two. Isn't having big enough barns for your crops common sense? Isn't it what this world runs on? Yes, it is what this world runs on. It is all a question of motives, good or bad. The teaching of the parable is summarised in the final phrase. He worked for himself and was not rich towards God. 
It is not easy to be consistently rich towards God, but that must be our lifelong ambition. Next we read chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These verses are all about worry. A great deal of Western culture is driven by worry. If your culture is not Western, I have to leave it to you to work out how closely this conforms to your situation. We in the West are trained from an early age to think we must have the right toys, the right clothes, the right boys' toys, cars, etc., and to worry if we do not. We cannot completely opt out of our world. In the words of Jesus, we need to be in the world, but not of the world, as he says in John 17. Question 3. Some of the Lord's servants rely on chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus said, Seek his kingdom, and these things, that is, all the good things of life, will be given to you as well. But if we all did that, who would be the givers through whom the Lord would supply us? How then should we understand this? We need to balance this saying with what Paul said to the Thessalonian Christians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Somewhere between the two sayings is the right course for each one of us. We read chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. Be dressed, ready for service 
and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is faithful and wise manager, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This section includes no less than four different sayings about masters returning home or thieves breaking in. Most likely, Luke has brought together things that Jesus said at different times, simply linked by key words or ideas. The first homecoming is in verses 35 to 38. The old Syriac and Arabic translations of the Greek both culturally closer to those days than our English is, have the servants expecting the master who withdraws from the banquet, which are both equally possible translations. Thus, they suggest there's a prearranged plan for the master to bring food home from the banquet for his servants, whom he then serves when he gets home. Question 4. Assuming that is correct, what does this parable teach about the final great banquet? Isaiah was the first person to talk about this when he says in chapter 25, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. 
Two chapters further on, Luke reports, When one of those, table with him, heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus picks up that phrase and goes on to talk about a great banquet. So assuming that that is correct, what does this parable teach about the final great banquet? This is an astonishing picture of Jesus receiving us, his servants, and serving us the good things of the great feast. Question 5. In the third and fourth episodes of Master's Returning, the emphasis is quite different. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the Master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It would be good for that servant whom the Master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. And then he goes to talk on about what happens if the servant is beating the under-servants. And then again, he talks about a servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants, being beaten with many blows. So there are two episodes there. And the emphasis on those is quite different. What is it? These two parables or sayings, with their emphasis on senior servants abusing their position over lesser servants, were probably chosen for inclusion by Luke to make some pointed comments to the church leaders of his day, some 40 years after Jesus said these things. They may well be strong rebukes to some church leaders in our day. Question 6. How do you understand the brutal bits. Jesus talks about the master of that servant coming on a day when he does not expect him, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And there again, he talks about a servant who does not do what his master wants. He will be beaten with many blows. We get the same sort of teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about the laying of foundations in the work of the church. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, this work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. When you read these, is it better to shun responsibility in the work of the kingdom and make sure we are not entrusted with too much? Why or why not? These sayings are a warning to all those who work in the church, from preaching to Sunday school teaching and looking after the creche. We have to work hard at our tasks, not to take them lightly, 
and not to forget that we need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in all that we do for the Lord. Paul said, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. If we do that, we shall not go far wrong. We read verses 49 to 53 next. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What a family division mentioned in these verses is rather alarming. We must never be responsible for the destruction of the peace, except for the fact that we follow Jesus. We must do all we can, apart from denying him, to avoid division. We read from chapter 12, verse 54 now, down to chapter 13, verse 5. He said to the crowd, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, It's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, It's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance on the earth and the sky, but how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those eighteen who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. One writer commenting on these verses about uh, the problems in Jerusalem says, Jesus' question and answer react to the popular notion that sin is the cause of calamity. If God is responsible for everything, and God is a just God, the calamities must be the result of human sinfulness. 
The fallacy in that argument is the notion that God is the immediate cause of all events, which leaves no room for human freedom or freedom in the created order, and therefore for events that God does not control. Question 7. Do you agree with that statement? This is a very doubtful argument theologically. It leaves God as less than sovereign. The problem that led to the question to Jesus is basically the same as that faced by Job and in the book bearing his name. The only answer given is that God is an unchanging rock for those who love him in spite of all apparent evidence to the contrary. Perhaps the phrase the ordinary chaos of life, accepting that God is sovereign, but we can have no idea what he has determined, we have no window into his sovereignty, is a good and acceptable summary of these verses. Finally, we're going to read chapter 13, verses 6 to 8. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up all the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This little parable of the fig tree is based on Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses, which says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. Interestingly, that's a parable about a vineyard, and what Jesus said was about a fig tree in a vineyard. What exactly the significance of that is, I don't know. Question 8. What does Jesus add to what that passage teaches? He includes a time marker, a year, probably to be understood as a period of grace before Israel would be cut down. In fact, that year turned out to be nearly 40 years before the siege and destruction of Jerusalem 
in AD 68 to 70. And that's the end of this study. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.